Hello, and welcome back to the Audience Podcast. I'm your host, Craig Hewitt from Castos. In this episode, I'm joined by Rachel Corbett, founder of Pod School, a podcasting course that helps both new podcasters and kind of seasoned veterans up their game and really get started in this awesome medium. Rachel also comes from a conventional media background, getting started in podcasting more than 20 years ago, but bringing that radio background and the kind of presence and the need to follow a story that I think a lot of us can learn from. So it's interesting to hear her perspective coming from a little bit different background than probably a lot of us. Rachel also had a stint at the Mamma Mia Network where she helped grow the listenership to over a million unique listeners, 90 million downloads, and over quadrupled the size of the network there. We talk a lot about what that looked like, both from a strategic perspective, but also kind of boots on the ground and what it meant of you know hiring people and bringing in new shows and how to validate those ideas. Talk a little bit about imposter syndrome and this feeling that we're never good enough and we don't ever know enough to actually do this and do any good at it. I think Rachel has some really interesting insights with this. And we wrap up talking about podcast analytics and how a lot of us stress about how many listeners our show has and how maybe that's not the most important thing, especially at first. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Rachel Corbett from Pod School. Can you share a bit of what you did in conventional media? and how that transitioned over to podcasting and then kind of where you started there? Yeah, so I guess I still got a bit of a big toe stuck partially in media, but my career started in radio. So I had the first 12 years of my career working as a breakfast and drive radio host and producer. So I did the classic traveling around the country, living on my own, crying myself to sleep at night because I had no friends um, experience that most radio people have. And kind of at the end of that, I wrapped up my last full-time contract and I started to teach um, at a radio school here in Sydney. And I really found that when I was teaching people the stuff that I'd been doing for a long time, that to be honest, when I started teaching, I was like, do I really know how to tell people what to do? And then what I realized actually is, oh, yeah, I do. And I know how to make them improve what they're doing. And I know how to hear something and tell them how they could do it better. And that was a real revelation for me because I found that I actually got more joy out of watching somebody else succeed off the basis of me helping them through my teaching than I had doing the actual job. <laughs> so that was like a moment because there's not much um, in media. It's it's a pretty not soulless business because you do find good people that you care very much about. But there's no sort of mentoring. It's not that emotional relationship that you have with your radio bosses where they care very much about your progression. You're kind of like begging them every two years for a job and hoping that they'll say yes and there's no real sort of lengthy relationship there. So I just got so much out of teaching and then I just thought – I noticed a lot of the similar questions I was being asked, particularly about people who wanted to start a podcast and things and people thinking, not realising how much of what we do in radio is actually really applicable to podcasting and helps to kind of profesh up the show that you're doing. And so then I thought, I think I'm going to try and create this online course to do what I'm doing now, but sort of go one to many instead of just one to one. And so that was where it was kind of born. I just found this thing that I realised that i really enjoyed and that was teaching what I knew. What do you think it is about this kind of like imposter syndrome for people that 
have experience like you had in, in a field, but are new to teaching it. So kind of coming around the other side of the table of like, I was a kind of participant in this field and now I'm, I'll say, quote, authority to whatever extent. Like, what, what do you think that is caused by? Because I think everybody experiences that a little bit. Yeah, imposter syndrome just never goes away, right? When you're right at the beginning, you think nobody could ever feel like this. And you're like, sweetheart, you could be doing this for 20 years and still feel like you got imposter syndrome. (laughs) It's just that weird thing I think we all kind of get. But I felt because the media stuff is so practice, practice, practice driven, and it's not like you sit down and you learn things, even though you do definitely learn the craft, you're basically thrown in the deep end and you just have to swim. You you do that by coming up with good and bad ideas so you know what works and what doesn't for an audience. You come up, you do that by coming up with a phone topic that gets absolutely no callers at one day and going, okay, that doesn't work. You do it by testing all of these waters and finding out how you can kind of survive rather than somebody sitting down and coaching you and saying, this is how we think about it, this is what we do. At least that wasn't my experience. It wasn't a very coachy kind of upbringing that I had. So when you get to to the point where you start to teach, you've been doing it for so long, but it's not like anybody's ever told you what you're doing that you start to think, I don't actually have any skills. All I can do is sit down and talk in front of a microphone. I don't know how I do it. I don't know how I come up with things to talk about. I don't know how I know what a good idea is. I just do it. So that transition across for me was very hard because I just, I didn't think I knew anything. I was just like, I don't know how to teach what what I do. And so when I started to actually break it down and, you know, part of that was when I started to go through the materials that they already had there at the radio school and started to teach them on behalf of the radio school and I was starting to go, oh, yeah, okay, I get it, I get it. And then you start to be able to sort of break down what you do. I think the game changer for me was when I would do one-on-one feedback in the studio with people and they would do things on air and then I would be giving them feedback about how they could improve. That for me was a real natural moment where they would do something and I knew exactly what to tell them to get something different out of them. So through a process of that kind of real, a lot of that over time, I started to really trust that, okay, I knew what I know what I'm doing, you know? Yeah, that real-time feedback is probably really important in that particular kind of example, because I think something that we see a lot, like we have a free course that we offer to people and stuff, and, and a lot of people go through there and we just never hear anything. We never hear anything, so we don't know if what we're talking about is resonating. So I can imagine that that's yeah, really helpful to to you kind of gaining confidence as a teacher. That's interesting. And also when you see somebody change what they've done off the back of your feedback and it does improve and you can hear it improve, but they also feel like they've improved, that is a feedback loop that really helps you as a teacher to feel like, oh, okay, I, not only do I know something, but also I like this because there is really nothing better than somebody like looking back at you and going, oh, I did it. <laughs> you know, like it's really, really cool. I wonder if some of the kind of early success or adoption of podcasting by like the tech or entrepreneur crowd was driven by that kind of thing that you mentioned of like, there's nobody to teach us how to do this. Podcasting, you know, especially like even like five years ago was so nascent and hard to understand that people just jumped in, you know, built the plane as they were flying or whatever the expression is, right? Do you think that that's like part of it is people kind of maybe like us who said, I'll just go figure it out as I'm doing it. We're the first ones to get into podcasting. And now that there's maybe a little more establishment to it, more people are coming into it. 
Yeah, and I think you could get away with a lot more back then. Now I don't think you can because the competition is so fierce and the money has come into the space and the professional organisations are stepping in. And, you know, now the sort of This American Lives where they were coming out of public radio with really professional teams, they were the minority, you know. Most of them were the bootstrapping kids that were sitting down having one-hour conversations about stuff in their kind of kitchen in an echoey space or whatever. So it's really gotten a lot more attention. But I think when I was starting my course, that was part of my thinking was that I saw that there were a lot of people that were just giving it a try. And as somebody who'd come through a professional broadcast, you know, we think so deeply about what we're putting to air, the audience that we're serving, the space is so competitive, so you have to have really good audio quality. Your ideas have to hit all the time. Like there's just there's so much that you need to do to make sure that you are actually going to keep your job on a commercial radio station. But I knew that there were really small things that you could do at home that we do professionally that you would never really think about if you had just sat down and gone, oh, I guess I turn this microphone on and start talking. And so that was really the thinking behind doing the course as well was I would listen to these podcasts and like, bless, I'm really glad that you gave it a go. But I'm like, people's ears, you're in there. Like that's, you got to respect that time. Like you're not respecting people's time with an echoey show that goes for an hour and a half where you don't actually get to any point, you know. So I think, yeah, that was kind of the thinking behind starting up the show was just hoping that I could, well, really the point was to rid the world of crummy podcasts. But, you know, it's, uh, yeah, there were a lot of people that were sucking in and seeing. And, and hey, they built great and really loyal followings and big audiences. But doing that now is much harder unless you have a really high quality product, I think. I'd love to talk about pod school a bit. So you, you've made reference to your course. It's called pod school. And I love kind of, I wanted to start with kind of where you came from in terms of like commercial and, and broadcast radio, because I think that your angle on teaching podcasting as a media professional is really unique. There's a lot of people like me who don't have a background in, in any kind of professional media. So I would love to hear a bit about like the things that you see commonly uh, like from your students in the school or things that you teach, you kind of touched on this already, of, of like things that we all don't think about that media professionals think about just instinctively that, that really kind of raise people's games. Yeah. So the one thing that's like the smallest thing you can change on your podcast but will have the biggest impact is thinking about who you're talking to as just one person. So one thing I notice a lot with podcasters that they'll use a lot of collective terms. It'll be, hey, all you guys out there. Hey, ladies and gentlemen. Hey, peeps. And for an audience member, you know, in radio, it is drummed into us. Talk to one person. You always say, what are you doing? Can you send me an email? Can you give me a call? Because then if every single individual listener is being spoken to individually on the collective, everyone will feel like a show is just for them, even if you have a million listeners. And for an individual listening to a podcast, it's a very individual experience for them. They've got their earbuds in their ears. And when you start saying things like, ladies and gentlemen, all you guys out there, hey, peeps, it's a small sort of thing, but subconsciously it can really disconnect an audience member from you because they're like, who are these people that you're talking about? Like, I'm here, there's nobody else. And actually just using that word you can in a almost indistinguishable way 
increase your connection with an audience member. So little things like that that were just second nature to us in radio was something that I never heard anybody say in podcasting when I first started out. You know, it was always this collective sort of term. So that's probably, you know, that's one of the things. The other thing I reckon from radio that podcasting really could learn from, I mean, one of the bad things about radio is that you've only got two and a half minutes in between songs or ads to talk. But that's also one of the good things about radio because you learn to keep it tight and bright. So you really know how to get to the end of your point, you know, start a beginning, middle and end of something with a high point at the end in two and a half to three minutes. And while that is super short and obviously a lot shorter than a podcast, there are a lot of podcasts that could do with a bit more time restrictions because <laughs> just because it can go for five hours doesn't mean it should. So I think there's a lot of that discipline in terms of content and timing that you have to have because you're trying to fit in with a very, very defined structure in radio that you really can bring into how you think about your content because ideally you want to leave an audience wanting more. You don't want them to get to the point where they're like, God, this has been going on forever. I've got to go and listen to something else. You want to leave them at a point where they're like, oh, this is over already. I can't wait till the next one comes out. And I think sometimes people feel like just because there's all the time in the world, they should take that up. And I, I think that's often a mistake in podcasting. Yeah, I was reading your blog post about having intentional silence in your podcast episodes. And I'm one of those people you're talking about that I want to fill every available <laughs> microsecond of space in a conversation because I, I just feel kind of silly when I don't, I think. But that's not a normal conversation. Normal conversations between two people in person have natural silence and transitions and things like that. So I think that's a great point. One thing that we are asked about a lot, uh, especially when we're kind of coaching our clients about how to create better podcasts, is how to effectively interview somebody and really get to the meat of the story. So not just like the surface, you know, I did this thing and then this happened, but like the why or the so what, like peeling that onion back. Are there any tips that you give your pod school students about how to ask good questions during interviews or how to really dig down to the meat of a topic? Yeah, there's a couple of ways. The first is if you can do it, I would always encourage a pre-interview. So often, you know, with some of the bigger guests you might get or it might not be a possibility because of time, but if you can, sitting down with someone on the phone and you don't want to do the whole interview in the pre-interview, you just want to sort of ask questions to kind of mine the areas that you might want to go to when you're actually doing the interview. It can just help to cut out some of the fluff because the last thing you want to do is book 30 minutes with someone and then get to the really great things at minute 25 and think, well, great, now we've got five minutes to explore this and then I have to say goodbye to you. So a pre-interview can just help you to work out where the interesting sort of rabbit holes are and the stories that you might want to delve further into. And if if your guest starts to tell you something in that moment and you think, oh, there's a good story here, this is something I want to chase up, you can feel free in that time to go, oh, I'm going to stop you there because I want to hear this live in the interview. So just hold on, uh, keep that thought, that's fantastic. And then just keep on rolling down your list of questions. So that can just help you make sure that you're fashioning things when you're actually in the interview to stop yourself wasting time and to get to those real bits of gold in the moment. And then when you're in the actual chat, 
I would just say, listen, like not enough people are present in the interview. They're hanging on to their questions. They're thinking, what have I got to say next? I'm looking down. I'm trying to read. You know, I always advise that you go in with as minimal notes as possible. You definitely need notes because you want to feel safe and have your security blanket there. But I go in with really simple bullet points, often with just one word underlined as a trigger for me to ask my questions so that I can really engage and listen and keep my focus on my guests because you'll notice that in the moment, they'll often say things that you haven't prepared for, planned for, you didn't see coming. And those are sometimes the best moments in an interview. And if you're listening, you can say, whoa, hang on a second. Knowing that you've always got the security blanket of your questions there to go back to, you can go, whoa, let's go down that rabbit hole for a while and see if we get somewhere else. And I think being present and in the moment when you're talking to somebody means you won't miss some of those things that can come up unexpectedly. And those will often lead to the best moments, I think. When you're kind of asking someone to clarify or going down a rabbit hole, as you say, do you actually interrupt them like mid-sentence or do you kind of wait for them to kind of logically finish their part of kind of what they're saying? Because something I feel like when I'm interviewing people like now is I wanted to interrupt you (laughs) 30 seconds ago, but I didn't because I think it's rude and it's weird and there's no kind of visual gesture or something like we could in person when you're podcasting, especially remotely like this. Like, do you actually interrupt somebody or do you wait and say, okay, let's go back to what you just said so we can dive into that more? So I would interrupt them in the pre-interview if we were just on the phone or chatting or whatever and it's just a casual conversation and I want to say, whoa, 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 tell me that when we're actually recording the real interview because that should feel quite natural and relax that conversation. In the actual interview, if there was something in the moment that I had to stop, like usually I will let somebody finish their point because you don't want to be that interviewer that's constantly walking over the top of someone. But that's, again, a delicate balance. There are, of course, moments where you can interrupt somebody because it makes sense in the moment, but then you do hear those interviewers who feel like they're constantly interrupting and you're like, can you let the poor person get their point out? So it can be a delicate balance, but that's why I think it's really important to use video when you're interviewing somebody because those kind of visual cues are missing when you can't see someone. And if you can see them, you can at least say at the beginning of an interview, hey, if there's something that you're saying and I might want to interrupt you, I'm not going to kind of run over you, but I might just put my hand up or just give you a little wave or a signal or something to just let you know that I'm going to jump in or something. And then you can kind of get as much of that natural kind of conversational chemistry as you can back because because you're right, it is hard to interrupt someone. But I'm telling you right now, Craig, you can feel more than free to talk right over the top of me and interrupt me anytime you want to. <laughs> <laughs> Permission granted. <laughs> Thank you. I know I, I try very hard because I think, well, I think part of it is a lot of podcasters are talkative folks. And that's a big reason we like podcasting is because we get a chance to talk. But an interview is not about us. It's about the person we're interviewing. And so it's, yeah, it takes some effort sometimes to shut up and sit here and yeah, be in the moment and think about and not add my damn two cents to everything. That well, you're doing a great says. job of it. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that we've explored a little bit on this show, and we had Jack Resider on from the Darknet Diaries a while back, and, and he does these really great narrative style podcasts that I think are becoming more and more popular. You mentioned NPR and Gimlet, and I think they're the ones that pioneered this a lot. I think this is kind of the ultimate for a lot of podcasters. Like, I'm going to do these narrative-style podcasts that are really cool-sounding, and, and there are a ton of work. But I would be curious to hear, like, from your perspective as somebody, like, in the industry and somebody that teaches new podcasters, like, what is your perspective on 
people getting into doing narrative style podcasts um, as like you should or you shouldn't do it. And then like if you're going to maybe think about these things. Love it if you've got a great idea. Think narrative is awesome. And it was a very untapped part <laughs> of podcasting for a long time. But now you're right. There are, I think all you need is for one podcast to be optioned as a film and all of a sudden, or, you know, or a TV series, and all of a sudden everybody's pretty keen to get into the old narrative storytelling. <laughs> um, so I think it's fantastic, but I have yet to meet a, well, at least, look, a lot of the people that come through pod school, they're really starting out from the beginning. They want to kind of come up with a show and they're not quite sure how to do it and they maybe don't have any editing or presenting skills. If that's where you are, doing a really high-quality narrative storytelling piece is going to be a tough ask because you're going to have to spend a lot of money hiring experts who know how to do it. If you've got the skills in audio editing and you've got a great story, then yeah, of course, it can be a fantastic project to put together. But I think with any podcast that you make, even if you're doing a simple one to one interview show that can take a lot of hours to prep, to book, to do social media, to edit, to share out, to grow, you know, all of the things around it. And a narrative podcast with all of those audio elements in it is another level above in terms of how long it's going to take you to put together. So one of the things I think it's important to know when you're starting a project is to understand how much time it might take because most podcasts pod fade out because people get into it and they go, nobody told me it was this much work. So if you're getting into something that is as much work as a narrative podcast, I think you have to either have the skills at your disposal, the money to hire the people to do it for you. So it's got to be a really big passion of yours if you're going to spend money on on getting that done. Otherwise, it could be a sort of situation where you leap in and you realize, oh, this is a bigger project than I actually realized it was, you know? Yeah. I mean, it, even for this show, we, we've kind of narratized, made some of the episodes into narrations and it was so hard that we don't do it very much. I mean, this interview will be released mostly as just interview instead of me kind of narrating our conversation. Cause yeah, I mean, it's, you know, we'll talk for 45 minutes maybe, and it would be four or five hours of me working on the episode afterwards. Even though we have a team to edit it, I have to be the one to create a lot of that secondary content, you know, those narrations that, yeah, it's not worth my time. I hate to say that, but yeah, no, that's fair. And I think, you know, when I guess when I'm thinking about narrative too, I'm thinking about that almost cinematic experience in audio. You know, I'm thinking about you're telling me a story and I'm all, it's almost like I'm watching a movie in my ears and that's another level above. But you're right, you know, you can do an interview in more of a, a narrative style where you're doing a voiceover so you'd cut your interview up into pieces and then have a voiceover that sort of, I guess, narrates your way through the episode. But again, you're right, that's additional time and if you're going to do one of those storytelling podcasts where it does feel like you're watching a film in your ears, then like that is big, big, big work. <laughs> you know? So I love I love the ideas. I love, I love the genre. I just think it's a hard one for a brand new podcaster to jump into without it being a heck of a lot of work. Yeah, no, absolutely agree. And that's that's the advice we give a lot of people on on narrative style shows and on solo shows. You know, because that there is nothing harder than sitting down in front of the mic 
and recording for 15 minutes by yourself because there's no one else there to bounce the energy off of and give you a chance to catch your breath and things like that. So you mentioned before we started recording that you have recently left the Mamma Mia network. I would love to hear about kind of your experience there and kind of like what went into growing that because I know you had a lot of success growing the number of shows and the team and love to kind of hear hear about you know how all that went and have a bunch of specific questions after that maybe. Yeah, so I was there 2017, I think I started, and I just left in March of this year. And when they brought me on, they'd sort of been giving it a go and they'd, you know, they'd made a, they'd had like a sort of rusted on um, really keen audience that were into what they were doing, but they sort of just wanted to step it up a bit. And almost the brief to me was like, you know, we want it to be a bit more like a professional sort of radio outfit, I guess. So the idea was to sort of lift the quality of the shows and to really try and make us a major player in the Australian market and then just to build out the network. So we were really trying to grow our audience and that meant that we needed needed a lot of a lot more shows in the space and so it was really a run at pace almost three years with a team that was much smaller than teams that you would be used to in in America I, I was putting together a daily podcast and I was sort of pitching for how many people I needed on the show and I just at the end of my presentation to the bosses I played the credits of the daily and there were maybe 24 names read out at the end of that show and they were like you're not getting 24 people and I'm like I know I'm not getting 24 people but I just wanted to let you know what some other shows have behind the scenes of this kind of daily podcast anyway we put that show together with three people and we had a daily news turnaround show of like covering the news of the day with three people including the host so you know we worked really lean but we got a lot of shows out the door so it was exciting because they were really as a business they were really keen on podcasting and I think as somebody who's really passionate about that it's really awesome to be in a space where some the business is so committed to something that you love so dearly so we really had the ability to get things up quickly like if we wanted to do a show or if the boss wanted to do a show it was a quick turnaround we could get that thing on air as soon as we wanted to and and that pace really ended up paying dividends because you know by the time I left we'd quadrupled the audience so I think we'd just hit our goal was to hit a million unique listeners by the middle of this year but we hit it you know by the beginning of of the year and and then we were over 90 million downloads as a network. So, yeah, it was really exciting and it was a really great experience to just really put all of that stuff that I had been sort of teaching into practice in a network setting. Yeah, it was really cool. I can imagine with the resources of a you know proper organization, not just us as you know entrepreneurs, would, would be really different too to have the ability to hire a team, multiple teams for different shows. That must have been cool. Yeah, and then having you know, a team for design that did some really great work and then, you know, working with your social team to sort of work out the best way to get your shows out there. And obviously the company, they have a really successful website. So, you know, we would be working with editorial all the time. So how do we translate the podcasts into, 
articles so we can make sure that we're getting as many eyes on the shows of people that maybe aren't listening to the podcast and see if we can transfer them over to pods from the website and that kind of stuff. So it was a really interesting intellectual exercise for me as well to be sort of, you know, when you're starting to think, well, how do we bring more listeners into the network and and having these different ways that you can do it and seeing what works and what doesn't. And, you know, I think podcasting is an interesting interesting space in terms of audience growth because we're so obsessed with where did that click come from and did somebody did I if I pay for an ad did someone click on it and I can see my return on investment and it's very different with podcasting you know you can put all the social media ads out there in the world but you can't really tell if you can tell if somebody clicked on something you can't really tell if they listened we've done a lot of social media advertising we think it had some impact. It's hard to sort of tell. It's kind of hard to work out exactly what it is that you're doing that's working. <laughs> so so that's a really interesting thing about podcast growth, I think. But one of the biggest benefits for the growth of that network was the actual network. So we found that people within our network already were really keen to try our new shows or really keen to listen. So once you've got a really strong, solid network and an audience, that's where you're getting the most most of your growth because it's much easier to convince somebody who already loves your podcast to try another one than it is to try and find somebody who doesn't know what a podcast is yet via, via a social media ad. Yeah. So that social proof that's built in automatically there, huh? Yeah, definitely. For hosts of a show who say, yep, I totally get the value of a network. That sounds great. I want that built in social proof so that I can kind of share my show with other shows and vice versa, but they're not part of a network or maybe they don't want to be officially part of a network. Like what kinds of things do you kind of like coach your students to say like, hey, you could approach the idea of a network like this, but maybe not officially like join one, you know, like to to try to enjoy some of that benefit. I think that not everybody needs to join a network. I, I Often I find with startup podcasters, they think that they have to get on somebody else's network to be successful. And that's just not the case. We've seen so many independent podcasters gain success on their own. And one of the great things about that is that you have total ownership of your show, how you market it, what you do with it, where you go with it. There will, of course, be some benefits sometimes to to working with a network, but I don't think it's necessary. And I think sometimes some podcasters can feel like it's the only way to have success. And I would just say start your show and see if you can build an audience. And then if you feel like you want to sort of approach a network, then you can go with something that is tangible and exists and already has a compelling case around it and has an existing audience and followers. And that means that you can go to the network and say, hey, I want to keep my IP, but I'd love you to house my show on your network for a while if, if that's what you want to do. So I think giving it a try to see if you can build up something naturally, if you can't, then you know, a network's not necessarily a silver bullet to make sure that you uh, your show is a success because your show has to be really solid to begin with. A bad show won't work on a big network. You have to have a really solid show to begin with. So, but yeah, I don't I don't think that you should think that the only way to be successful is is to be on a network. Yeah, because I'm not sure that that always works. 
one thing that like we face, we think about starting another podcast, and I think a lot of our audience does too. They, they've started a single show, and they've had success of whatever kind of degree and whatever that means to them, and they think, well, I just want to do more of this, and I want to start another show, and I want to talk about this other thing. But that gets scary because we've had like some degree of success, and we're comfortable. We know, you know like that individual audience persona that we're talking to. When you were part of the Mamma Mia network and you were evaluating starting another show, like what did that process look like in terms of like flushing the idea out and validating it, any kind of like pre-testing or, or anything like that? I would love to hear kind of what the pros do uh, to like validate an idea and, and kind of get the show ready to launch. I think if you have an audience already and you have some kind of way to communicate with them, maybe you've got a Facebook page or a group or you've got an email list and you communicate with them regularly, don't be afraid to ask them because they're the ones that already like your show. So we had done shows in the past where we would send out an email asking about certain questions. You know, you can get a lot of really great answers from the people who already love the stuff that you do. And if those are the people that are most likely to jump over and try something else that you've created, then why not mine them for ideas and see what they want and kind of put in front of them the idea that you're thinking and see if that's something they'd be into and how what they want might show shape how you create the actual show. So that can be a really useful way to sort of do a bit of market research on something that doesn't exist and see if there's an appetite for it. And you'll usually get a sense from your rusted on fans whether it's a good idea by their enthusiasm or whether it's just like crickets in your inbox and you just have to keep pushing them for a response. So usually if somebody's excited about something, they'll tell you pretty quickly about it. So that can be, I think, a helpful way to do things. And then I think, I know it's scary. It's so scary, but if you've already got a show that's had success, you know, you've got an audience there of people who are interested in you as a host or interested in what you do. And so that is the safest place to be starting a new show from. Remember, you started a show with nothing (laughs) at one point. So if you're going to start another one and you've already got an existing show that you can run ads on and you can tell them about it during the show and you can get people over to your new feed, that's actually a really soft landing to be in. So I think it's if you think you've got something good there, don't be afraid to test your audience with it and and just jump. I mean, you've got people there that already like what you do. And if it fails, who cares? You don't have to do a podcast for the rest of your life. You could decide that you're going to do one season and you just put together one season of that show. You tell everybody you know about it. You let your original listeners know. And then if it's not as successful as you hoped it would be and you don't have the passion for it, you don't have to bring it back. <laughs> it can just be a project that you forget about. <laughs> I have a question about your site where you have a ton of really great content and a lot of great podcast episodes to go along with them. Do you create a podcast first for your blog or do you create the blog post first and then record a podcast episode for it? And does each post on your site kind of have both or is it kind of a mishmash of both media? I tend to have, and I've found this the same thing with the Mamma Mia Network, the website audience is often different to the podcast audience. So I have a lot of people coming to my website via search looking for podcast questions. And so I wanted to make sure that my show notes were like a blog post that they would find if they wanted their question answered. So rather than doing the traditional show notes where it's kind of, you know, maybe time-coded or it doesn't have a whole heap of info fleshed out, the idea is to get people to just press play. For me, I really wanted a visual 
written version of the podcast episode that I have. So I was kind of serving two audiences. So it depends. Sometimes the words flow out of me and I sit down and I kind of type up my blog post and that becomes the basis of my notes for my episode. Other times I will record an episode, I will take the transcript and I will use that as the base for my blog post. So I'm not having to start from scratch with my show notes to create that blog post. I've actually basically got the structure and the information there in the transcript and I can just use that to fashion a blog post out of it. So that's usually the way that I operate. Cool. Yeah, we do a similar thing, I think, especially for our non-interview shows. So I do kind of monologues a a bit on this podcast. And a lot of times they're for blog posts that we want to write or content on our site that we want to have. And sometimes, though, they're for older blog posts that we've done that have some interest. And we think that kind of repurposing them into audio makes sense, again, for that different audience. Like we've reached people that want to read the content, and now we, you know, repurpose it into audio for a podcast episode for this show. And that's been cool to do from a like a content creation perspective because it's it makes yeah, it makes that monologue quite a bit easier to have a big old 2000 word blog post to kind of use as your outline. And we've gotten really good feedback from folks on this show to say like wow, that was really cool that you walked through, you know, the five steps you do to do this or the the best way to think about this and it's not something I've ever done before. It's been kind of a pleasant surprise. Yeah, and I think you have to – some people will say, well, you don't want to double up your content. I'm like, but not everybody that listens to your podcast episode is going and reading your blog post, but those experiences should actually be different enough that if they listen to the podcast episode and they're like, oh, you know what, I'm really interested in this, I want to go to the blog post, it is a different experience that they get something extra out of. So the way that you structure it as a blog post, it can be just – almost the way that somebody solidifies what they heard in the podcast episode because they can see it, it's broken down, you've got the headings, you're stepping through things bit by bit. And some people really like to read to learn, some people listen, some people listen and then go, I want to read to really solidify this in my mind. So I think providing both those experiences, especially if you're teaching something, like if you want people to learn, it's a different experience if you're doing sort of a comedy show or just a chat show about things and you can just pop time codes in there and whatever. You don't really need to flesh out your your show notes or doing a transcript of an interview that goes for an hour long. It'll be you spending a lot of money for somebody to subscribe to transcribe it with 95% accuracy or sitting there for hours yourself going through because you don't want to put a transcript on your website that makes no sense. But when you're teaching something, I think it, it's a really good resource to have that blog post as your show notes page. Rachel, those are all the questions that I had that I really wanted to touch on. Is there anything that you wanted to talk about more that you want to touch on? One thing I guess that I would add that I think cannot be reiterated enough considering how many questions I get asked about it, I don't know if you guys are the same, but I cannot stress how much people overestimate how much money you can make from podcasting and how many downloads you will get from podcasting and how quickly both of those things will come. <laughs> Do Amen. you get this? <laughs> Amen. <laughs> just, we literally talked about this in our team meeting yesterday. Oh, yep. man, oh, man. I get uh, emails on the daily where some people will literally say, I've been doing my show for two months and nobody's asked me to spend any money on it. What am I doing wrong? And I'm like, keep going. Keep going. Like, Call me in so, a year. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the idea that this is going to happen quickly for you, that it is guaranteed, that the podcast that you want to make is going to be the way that you can leave the job that you hate. I just, 
change your dreams, you know. If it happens for you that way, then great. Some podcasts really do succeed and have massive audiences, but it is a chip away at it every single day kind of thing to get the sort of payback that you, that some people are dreaming of. And I think because most people who shout about their numbers are shouting about numbers in the thousands, tens of thousands, millions, then a lot of startup podcasters can think that that's what they're supposed to get when they first kick off because nobody's saying, hey, guys, i got 50 downloads. Woohoo. Nobody's putting that in their social media. And we're sort of having that same experience that we had for years in social media where we kind of got to the point where we're like, oh, I think everybody's just putting their highlights reels on here and maybe we shouldn't pay that much attention to it and like cry ourselves to sleep over the fact that somebody's having a better life than us because it might not be true. And yet we go and do the same thing again with podcasting, hearing these things and thinking, oh, I must be the only person who's not making money and not getting any downloads. You're not. You are in the majority. (laughs) This is what podcasting is. It is a passion project and if you chip away at it for ages, then you might be able to build a brand that gets a lot of downloads and then sell that brand or get ads on it or whatever, but that is not going to happen in five minutes. So I just, yeah, I'm amazed how often I get asked questions about that and people think my answer is going to be a quick one where I can just tell them the silver bullet. Can we all stop just looking for silver bullets just generally in life? They don't exist. Hard work and persistence is the only way to get success in anything, whether it's podcasting or whatever. So the same rules apply. Yeah, no, absolutely. I I totally agree. And and the thing that we tell folks as well is to adjust your expectations or your goal of what success is, because you're not Joe Rogan, where your audience is the world, right? Like this show, we're a podcast about podcasting. Our audience is a couple million people, maybe, right? Everybody who podcasts or wants to podcast. So that's our total audience. And so, you know, for this show, if we have a thousand listeners, that's really impactful for us. If we have 10,000, that would, or a hundred thousand, that would be wow. And so, yeah, I don't lose sleep over not being Joe Rogan. And I think that applies to everybody, especially the more niche you get. So you're a local business in Sydney, Australia, talking about how to run a bakery. You're a really good show for you might be 50 downloads. And I think a better way to think about that is to think about your numbers like people in a room. If you booked a space and you said you were going to do a talk and 50 people turned up, you'd be happy. <laughs> you would be happy. That's a that's a damn good gig. You know, it's a great crowd. They're going to like what you're saying. It's intimate enough for you to be able to back and forth. So you want to turn up for those 50 people who have decided that your content is good enough to listen to rather than just saying all the time, that's not enough. Like just turn up for those people and eventually more people will come because people on the end of that kind of energy when you're turning up and you're doing a show for them can really feel that. And word of mouth, while slow as a bloody snail, is still one of the best ways to grow your podcast. It's not stratospheric, you know, it doesn't happen in two and a half seconds. So it can, people don't have the patience to wait around for it, but you just have to turn up for the listeners that you've got and eventually you you, you will grow your audience. Love it. To wrap up, I would love to have you get your crystal ball out a bit and maybe talk about something that you see in podcasting that you're excited about, you know, technology or show formats or any kind of opportunities or things you see starting to happen that that you're excited about that you think folks should pay attention to. May I wear a cape while I've got my crystal ball? (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad I brought the outfit along. I'm excited that people keep saying it's just the beginning 
because as somebody who has been in this for a really long time, that cracks me up every time I hear it because I think, really? Is it, can it be? Because there are some of us that have been doing this for ages. But the fact that everybody thinks that we're right at the beginning of this, I think is really exciting because good ideas, good content delivered and executed really well, I don't think can fail. And I think one of the things that I've always been so excited about in podcasting because of my experience in radio and the idea that the only way to get your idea or your voice on air was to knock on the door of a radio station and hope that a radio boss in tight jeans would say that you were good enough to maybe put on the midnight to dawn shift. And then if you were lucky, you might get shipped out to absolutely nowhere, to live for three years in the hope that eventually you'll come back to the capital city. And now if you've got a great idea, you don't have to ask anybody. You can just make it. So I really am just excited to see how the space continues to evolve. I think smart speakers are still such a small, small fraction of the population have those at home. So much growth there, so much opportunity for audio as something that interacts with your space. So I think that's really cool. I'm really interested to see how people can change the kind of content that we're used to thinking about as a podcast to make it a bit more of an interactive experience. I really like, you know, like uh, Wooshka, a platform bought out private podcasts to actually be like subscriber-only podcasts, so how people can actually think about podcasts not necessarily being something that's public for everybody and how you can actually adjust your content and what you can do with that to sort of give your audience a different experience. I'm interested to see where all of this sort of narrative stuff goes and how Hollywood's interest in pods will then change things and and make people step up because I think now that's the sort of that is the new version of the book option. So I think more and more people will be stepping into that space. But I, I just get really excited by seeing how people are thinking differently about the medium. And I think that honestly, there are really no limits to what you can do in audio. Visual is great, but you are in some ways limited by what you can create. If you can create, you can take me anywhere in an audio setting. You might not be able to book a set or actors or costumes that make, you know, so you might not be able to take me to space on a video because you can't get the costumes to make the aliens look realistic enough or the set that means that you can look like we're on the moon, but you can take me there in my ears. So I really like how much opportunity there is for that. And um, I mean, hey, it's only the beginning. They keep telling me. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about all those things too. I think especially, I mean, just that last bit, I think about right now, right? That nobody's making movies <laughs> right now. And so it might be interesting to see in the really near term, like does Hollywood get into podcast versions of movies? Rachel, this is a lot of fun. I really enjoyed our conversation. I know everyone will too. Uh, for folks who want to catch up with you and kind of learn more about what you have going on, where's the best place they can go? They can head to my website, Rachel Corbett. That's R-A-C-H-E-L Corbett at uh, .com.au. I don't even know the name of my own website. That's a problem. And then, of course, if um, you want to check out the online course, you can check that out at podschool.com.au. Thanks for talking to me, Craig. It's been a delight. Yeah, my pleasure. It's a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 